I have some expectation that perhaps one day uh, I may come back and do a little bit more uh, of Colossians. We look at chapter 2 this evening, and we're reading just those verses from, (coughs) excuse me, now I'll read from the beginning of the chapter. Although we read it this morning, we'll read this section again from chapter chapter 2 and verse 1. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, Established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therefore therein with thanksgiving, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy or vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him, through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And we finish our reading at the end of verse 13. We trust that God will give us understanding of his infallible and inerrant word. Now Paul continues with his argument, with his instruction about how the believers should live, the things that they should do, the things that they shouldn't do. And it's evident, as you read Colossians, it's evident that the heretical teachers in Colossae were a real threat to the stability and the confidence of the believers. So Paul, in verses 6 and 7, states the positive. He then reinforces the message that he's giving to them by stating the negative in verses 8 to 10. He doesn't want believers to be moved away from their absolute assurance in the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes clear that there is a tremendous contrast between the pure doctrine of Christ revealed from heaven and the spurious wisdom of these false teachers. 
There's an absolutely staggering contradiction in these verses. On the one hand, there is the power and wisdom of man, and on the other, the glory and majesty of the incarnate Son of God. So the first thing that we see in these verses is the danger of man-made philosophy in verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Having studied a year of philosophy at university, I concur entirely with what Paul says here. Uh, Beware lest anyone spoil you through philosophy. But that's not what he means. Paul warns the believers not to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, he was not suggesting, for the young people here, I'm sorry to disappoint you, uh, but Paul is not suggesting that you shouldn't study. Paul is not suggesting that it's not good to dedicate yourself uh, to study truth. Neither was he condemning as such the traditions of men. Philosophy has been described as an acquaintance with divine and human things. Acquaintance with divine and human things. Now, if this is true, if this is a true description of philosophy, then we all ought to study philosophy. Because taking that description, it can be a wonderful means of understanding ourselves and our own nature, as well as the world that God has made. And the God who made the world. After all, the scripture says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. So if philosophy, the meaning of philosophy, and I guess most philosophers wouldn't give you this description, but that it is an acquaintance with divine and human things, then we should all want to do that because we would want to know about ourselves, how God made us. We want to know about God, the things that he made, how he made it, how he operates in society, and so on. We need to learn about God and man. But Paul's warning here has to be seen in the context of the heretical teaching of people like the Gnostics. They elevated human wisdom above the revealed word of God. So when Paul and the other apostles and the other teachers who went about teaching in the early years, they were telling the people what God said. Now, remember, they did not have the New Testament. The New Testament had not yet been written. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They had the words of Christ and they had the teachings of Paul. And so they were teaching these words. And 
the Gnostic teachers were saying to them, that's grand, that's good, it's all good stuff, but you need something else. You need the kind of wisdom that only we can give you. You need the kind of wisdom that comes from studying all these philosophical concepts. You need to have an understanding of, of certain passwords and so on, so that you will be able to really get into, uh, in depth, into these things that you're talking about. What Paul wanted to do was to warn them against substituting the theories and notions of men and the attempts of men to reach up to heaven by their own efforts, because that's what the Gnostics were saying. They were saying, if you do this, if you study this, if you perform these rituals, then it will get you closer to heaven. Paul knew that there were those in the church, not just who accepted the Gnostic heresy, but there were people in the Jewish church who wanted to retain many of the elements of Judaism and impose them on Gentile believers. There were those who said, before you become a Christian, you must become a Jew. Now, remember, they were going out into the Gentile world. The Jews were circumcised, and there were those in the church who were saying, well, before you become a Christian, you must be circumcised. You must become a Jew, and you must undertake many of these old Jewish practices. When they imposed that on Gentile believers, they made salvation partly by faith and partly by works. And Paul was very much opposed to this kind of teaching. In the Jewish environment, and it was the, the kind of environment that, that many of the early believers had grown up with, Many things had been added to the written law given on Sinai. For example, the Pharisees, instead of having 10 commandments, had 613. 613 commandments, which they said came from God. They had 365 negative commands and 248 uh, that were positive. And these, the reason why the Pharisees had done this, I think probably at the beginning it had a good purpose. They said, the law of God is so holy, it is so precious, we don't want anyone to break it, so what we'll do is we'll put a fence around the law. So all these extra regulations, both positive and negative, they were like a barrier keep, keeping people away from the law of God so they would not break the law. Now that may have been their purpose, but by this time they had become perhaps even more important 
than the Ten Commandments that God had given. The Lord Jesus Christ talks about this when he says, they keep their own laws, but they ignore the weightier matters of the law. They tithe even the spices they used in their food. But he said, Jesus said, they ignored the weightier matters of the law in Matthew 23. We read in Matthew 23 of what the Lord Jesus Christ said about these Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees. They had taken things to a ridiculous extent. Let me give you an example. The law says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Now, how far should you travel on the Sabbath day? If we are to keep the Sabbath day holy, then the Pharisees said, well, how far can you travel on the Sabbath day? And they eventually worked out that a Sabbath day's journey was 2,000 cubits or something less than two-thirds of a mile. So a Sabbath day journey, two-thirds of a mile. But the Pharisees thought, well, the problem is it's not very far. And perhaps we might want to go further. So they worked out a scheme by which if on the day before the Sabbath you went a Sabbath day's journey, two-thirds of a mile, and you took with you some of your own possessions, at two-thirds of a mile you set these possessions down, then that became your house. So you could go two-thirds of a mile from this house to this house, where your clothes were, and then you could go another two-thirds of a mile. And you could multiply that so you could make the journey as long as you wanted. And you still hadn't broken the Sabbath day because you hadn't gone more than two-thirds of a mile from your own house. It was also counted as Sabbath-breaking to look at a mirror fixed to the wall. Now, whether it was different for a handheld mirror, I don't know. But it was breaking the Sabbath day to look at a mirror on the wall. Also, to light, looking to light a candle. There were so many regulations that the Pharisees brought in that were added to what God had commanded. And what Paul wants them to do he says, I don't want you to be bound by human regulations. But you know, that was not just true of the Pharisees and the Judaizers in Colossae. But it's very true of much of professing Christianity 
One commentator puts it like this. One of the most subtle and damning errors of our day and hour is that men who profess to be religious leaders and representatives of the gospel refuse to permit the gospel or the word to have the final say. They are forever adding their own interpretation. And Paul condemns these practices by saying that they were according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to... Now let's dig into that a little bit more. In the middle of the 19th century, any Presbyterian church <coughs> that you had gone into in Scotland and in Ireland, you would have found a worship service very much like the one that we practice here. There would have been the singing of psalms with no musical accompaniment and the preaching of the word. That would have been almost exclusive throughout the whole of certainly Scotland and Ireland. Up until about 1850. And then something began to happen. There came from the United States of America two evangelists. A man called Dwight L. Moody and his songster, Sankey. And they began to have a great impact in Ireland and in Scotland with their campaigns. And the preaching was accompanied by lively singing, musical accompaniment, and songs that were not from the Bible, songs that were of human composition were being sung. And they were lively tunes. And people listened to these tunes. And they liked the tunes. And they began to import these gradually into worship. Now, what they were doing was, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Why, did, why were they, before the 1850s, why were they singing only psalms? And why were they singing without musical accompaniment? Because that is what the Bible had taught them. That's what their pastors, their ministers had taught them. What they had learned from the, from the Shorter Catechism and the Westminster Confession. These were things that they had learned and they had put into practice because they were from the scriptures. But then their hearts and their minds began to be filled with these songs, these lively songs that made the spirit feel good, that made them, that made them feel excited. And it generated an excitement amongst the congregation. And they began to say, we must have this. We must have this, not just in our Moody and Sankey campaigns, we must have this 
regularly in worship. And so they began to put pressure on their, uh, on their ministers, their elders, their sessions and so on. And bit by bit, this was introduced into worship. Not because it was what God commanded, but because it was what man liked. Because what men liked and not what God commanded. And that's exactly what Paul is arguing for here. He's saying we do not follow the traditions of men. We follow the word of the living God. Going to a Presbyterian church now in this country, you will hardly ever hear a psalm sung. Hardly ever. When I was growing up, it was perhaps two psalms and two hymns. Now there's no psalms. Now they have praise bands at the front. Now they have drums and trumpets and whatever else. And so when these things are played, it elevates the spirit and it takes the focus away from God. It takes the focus away from Christ. We are coming to worship a holy God. We come to worship a God who is a consuming fire. We come to a worship, we come to a God who is of purer eyes and to behold iniquity and cannot look upon sin. And yet we come with all our sin and we think somehow that we can be light and flippant in his presence. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. It's what the Pharisees did, and it's what the heretics in Colossae did. They were going according to what men liked, to what people wanted, rather than what God wanted. That's then the danger of this man-made philosophy. And then in verse 9, Paul makes a declaration about the person of Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In, in contrast to this man-made delusion, the Apostle Paul points once again to Christ and shows that completeness comes only from him. Man-made delusions. Why do you think that the Presbyterian Church in Ireland decided to ordain women elders and women ministers? Why did they do it? Did they do it because they suddenly had a revelation from the word of God that this is what they should do? That this is what God required of them? No. They did it because of the feminist movement. Because the feminist movement began to say that it wasn't right for there only to be, women, uh, to be men elders and men ministers. It meant that the church was somehow misogynist and hated women. Whereas the truth of the matter is, 
It's what God has ordained. It's what God has said. It's his word. But you see, Paul is saying to him, look, in contrast to these man-made delusions, look at Christ. Completeness comes only in him. And the statement that Paul makes in verse 9 is truly staggering. It's a phrase that sometimes trips off our tongue with such ease that we do not even realize how truly amazing it really is. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, of the Godhead bodily. For in him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Isn't it an amazing statement? In Jesus is found all the attributes of the sovereign God. Now think about that. Not just some of them, but all of them. The Lord Jesus was able to say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In Jesus, all of his attributes are there. All divine power, wisdom, holiness, beauty, and righteousness are found in Christ. I think sometimes we've become I don't know, blasé about Jesus, about who he is. We see him as a baby in a crib around the 25th of December. We see him pictured in children's picture storybooks. We see him as a man. We see him as a man with a, with a beard and long hair, doing good, being kind. And yes, that is one part of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Jesus, there is all divine power. The power that spoke the word and everything came into being. The power that rolled back the waters of the Red Sea. The power that split the rocks. The divine power of God is in Christ. It is in Jesus. All his wisdom, holiness, and beauty and righteousness is found in him. In Christ. In Christ. I think sometimes we should be more careful about how we speak the name of Christ. He is God in all his fullness. But the amazing thing is that in Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead was seen. There were in Colossae those who refused to believe the reality of the God-man. They didn't accept that he was 
made in the likeness of sinful flesh. They didn't accept that he was born as all men are born, in exactly the same way as we are born. You see, you have to remember that it wasn't his birth that was supernatural, it was his conception. His birth was normal, ordinary, just like ours. That he grew and developed as all men do. And although his full glory was veiled, his disciples saw his glory as the only begotten of the Father. And that didn't just come when Jesus reached maturity and when he reached 30 years of age. They saw his likeness as of the only begotten of the Father when he was a child, when he was growing up under the care of Mary and Joseph, when he went to the temple at 12. You see, he revealed God. He healed the sick, raised the dead, stilled the storm, cast out the demons. In other words, he did acts, he did things that only God can do. And even some people who saw these things said, can anyone else open the eyes of the blind? Can anyone else raise the dead? And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ did. So when he was living on this earth, men and women saw his glory. They saw him as he was. The likeness or the fullness of the Godhead was seen. He stands up in a boat and he says, Peace be still. And the raging storms ceased. Imagine that. Imagine the power of the sea. We've recently been considering the tragedy of the Princess Victoria some 30 years ago. Uh, more years ago than that, uh, in Larne. When a large ferry was overturned by the fury of the waves. And this man, Jesus, he stands up in a boat and says, peace, be still. And the waves and the sea died down. The fullness of his Godhead was seen. And so Jesus was able to say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. But not only so, in Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead is presently available for all those who believe. He was not just the fullness of God uh, or the fullness of the Godhead in eternity. He was the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form during his time on earth. He continued to be the fullness of the Godhead 
when he ascended into heaven, he continues to be the fullness of the Godhead as he makes intercession for his people. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought that this one who stilled the storm, this one who healed the sick, this one who raised the dead, this one is making intercession for you. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have anxieties and trials and difficulties, know that he is praying for you. Sometimes we don't know how to pray for ourselves. And yet this one makes intercession for his own people. He will be the fullness of the Godhead when he returns again in power and in glory, when he returns in bodily form. You see, Paul wanted the Colossian believers to turn their eyes and their thoughts away from these philosophical intricacies presented to them by the Gnostics and focus their full attention on Christ and to lose themselves in the glory of his person and his work. Once again, Paul is seeking to demonstrate to these Colossian Christians how foolish these false teachers really were, seeking to add strange rituals and passwords to the finished work of Christ. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What more could anybody possibly want? It is no less foolish for people today to suggest that the work of Christ on the cross can only be effective in the life of a man or a woman when they of their own free will decide to accept it. The truth is that God makes rebellious men and women willing in the day of his power. That's why we sang Psalm 110 this evening. He makes men and women willing in the day of his power. None of us would have come to Christ of our own volition. None of us were eager to come to Christ. We were rebels against God. But he made us willing in the day of his power. And finally, very quickly, the delight of being in Christ. He says in verse 10, And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. The heretics were saying, you need this, you need this, you need this, you need something else. Paul says, no, you don't. You are complete in him. Everything that you need is found in him. The believer can be complete in Jesus Christ because in Christ there is the fullness of God. 
the fullness of the Godhead. All the power, wisdom, understanding are eternally present in God and they were present in the body, in the bodily form of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, the believer has every single thing that he needs. Everything is available to him. There is nothing lacking and therefore the believer is complete. The Gnostics wanted to add these rituals and passwords and magical incantations to, to Christ. But Paul reminds believers that absolutely nothing can be added to the fullness of Christ. And he says, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. So the believer has the wisdom of Christ. Isn't that amazing? The believer has the wisdom of Christ. Did Christ know how to walk in this earth? Did he know how to avoid temptation? Did he know how to answer the, uh, the, the critics that came up against him? Well, the wisdom that is Christ's is ours. It's available to us. He becomes for us wisdom from God. There is nothing lacking. The wisdom of Christ, the sanctification of Christ, and the redemption through Christ. All that is available to us if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing lacking in Christ. So for the one who is in Christ, there is also nothing lacking. What God demands, or one commentator puts it this way. He says, every need, no matter how great or how small, is met in Christ. Do we believe it? Do we believe that every need, no matter how small or how great, is met in Christ? What God demands, he has provided in the finished work of his son, of the son of his love. The fullness of that provision is seen in the final part of verse 10, when he says, for Christ is the head of all principality and power. There is no one superior to Christ. There is nothing superior to Christ in wisdom, power, and knowledge. He is above all. Therefore, whatever the believer needs can be fully and completely met in him. And so Paul says, you are complete in him. You are complete in him. What a glorious message Paul has for us this evening. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. For in him 
dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. So let's go from this place rejoicing that we are complete in him, and that in him, in Christ, we have everything that we need. Amen.